Welcome to another edition of the Hawk Off the Press podcast. I'm your host, Gazette Hawkeyes reporter, John Steppe. And I'm joined with another John today for this edition of the podcast, John Hill from the Louisville Courier Journal. John covers the University of Kentucky. John, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for somebody, I oftentimes start with the question for somebody who hasn't seen such and such team, what's the scouting report? But in this case, I think really a lot of Iowa fans probably haven't seen much of Kentucky with SEC, Big Ten, um, not too much overlap there. So what is kind of the scouting report for somebody who maybe hasn't seen Kentucky this season? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times Mark Stoops' Kentucky program gets compared to a Big Ten kind of program, a style of play. Um, obviously not being an Iowa expert, but just, you know, my kind of layman's view of the research on that team since the bowl announcement was was came, I think that they're actually fairly similar. I mean, Kentucky's a team that the last four or five years has built its success on the defensive side of the ball, primarily with a physical run game, you know, one of the best offensive lines of the country, uh, but they don't you know, go out and run a ton of plays every game. Even on defense, they don't run a very aggressive scheme. A lot of times it's it's very, you know, let teams dink and dunk down the field a little bit, limit big plays, um, sometimes bend but don't break. And it's worked really well for them. The interesting side of the ball for Kentucky this year has been offense because they built this reputation as this physical smash mouth team when they had Benny Snell and uh, Lynn Bowden and their offensive line. And they just frankly couldn't throw the ball very well the last four or five years. That finally came to a head last season when they had to play the SEC only schedule. Uh, They were five and six with the bowl win. And I think it kind of reinforced to Mark Stoops that, you know, they had made strides as a program, but if they wanted to take that next step, if they wanted to be legitimate contenders in the East division, they had to go out and find a competent passing attack. And so he fired his offensive coordinator, his quarterback's coach. He brought in Liam Cohen from the Rams. He was their assistant quarterback's coach to run the system that Sean McVay has built to some success in the NFL. And it's worked really well this season. I mean, uh, they got Will Levis, the quarterback transfer from Penn State, who I know Iowa fans are somewhat familiar with. They got Wondell Robinson, the wide receiver transfer from Nebraska, who obviously played against Iowa before, is from locally in Frankfort, Kentucky. Those two guys were huge parts of it, but the scheme was much better too. And so they've, you know, they they haven't thrown the ball a ton. They haven't put up huge passing numbers outside of a few games against some bad opponents, but they've been respectable on that side of the ball and teams can't just load the box anymore and dare them to throw it. They have a legitimate passing attack now that adds the balance. The play action pass is so important in this offensive scheme. So if Kentucky wins, um, it's still a team that's going to run first, uh, but they're going to mix in some big plays in the passing game. And then on defense, they're going to play a conservative style, but enough to where they limit their opponents. Don't give up big plays. Don't give up big yardage totals. uh, And then hopefully win the games you know, keep games in the in the mid to high 20s, uh, their opponent, that's kind of their, their blueprint for success. I think a few of those things will probably sound a little familiar to Iowa fans there. But it seems like at the heart of this rushing attack is Rodriguez. And I was really impressed with the efficiency that he's run the ball with this year. Yeah, he's really, he's good. Um, they've had this kind of success, uh, string of running backs. Obviously, Benny Snell was here for three years when they won the Citrus Bowl in 2018, well, January 1st, 2019. He became the school's all-time leading rusher in that game. It was his last game as a Wildcat. And then after he left, there was this question of, okay, was it, you know, Benny Snell was that good or is it a system thing? Is it an offensive line? I think the way that Chris Rodriguez has played the last couple of years, they're very similar players in terms of he's not the fastest guy in the world. He's really physical. The first tackler almost never gets him down. You know, he gets lots and lots of yards after contact has suggested it. It's a little bit of both. I mean, I don't think he's Benny Snell, but he's averaging, you know, over six yards a carry in his career. Uh, this year, fumbles have been a big problem for him uh, early in the season, especially. Uh, then it popped up a little bit late in the season, and he's got six fumbles total this year. He's lost three fumbles inside the opponent's five-yard line, which is obviously a bad a bad spot for it. That has been kind That's of – a this- hard way to win games doing that. Yeah, luckily one of those got recovered by one of his own offensive linemen for a touchdown, but two of them did not. And so – that's a, that's a problem for them, and it has been for Chris. And the fumble issue has been kind of this cloud over his season. 
because he tied the record in, in the regular season finale for most 100-yard games in a season for Kentucky, something that Benny Snell never did. Um, and so he normally you would think, oh, well, this is one of the best running back seasons in program history. But because of the fumble issue, I don't think Kentucky fans really know what to make of Chris Rodriguez these days. But when he's on, when he's not turning the ball over, uh, he's a very powerful running back who you know establishes the run. He gets better as games go on because teams, you know, just physically get worn out by his style of just running over guys. Uh, but he's not a perfect player by any means. So I think that he's, if you're talking about X factors for Kentucky, he's definitely one of them. Well, that'll be an interesting matchup there with his fumble issues and Iowa's defense and their ability to force turnovers that kind of a video game like rate. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch down in Orlando. Yeah, I mean, Kentucky's been, uh, you know, if not last in the country in the bottom five for basically the entire season in turnover margin because of the fumble issue. But also, I mean, Will Levis, I think 11 or 12 interceptions. A bunch of those were early in the season. Uh, he got better about that as as time went on. But this is a team that has not taken care of the ball for most of the year. It didn't really bite them except in a couple games because, you know, frankly, their strength of schedule was not very good. And so they were playing uh, some some teams they could beat up on even when they were making mistakes. But I, I think that's true for Kentucky basically every game this year. It's if they're playing a real opponent, a team with a pulse, are they going to take care of the ball? And if they don't, uh, they could be in trouble. And then kind of switching gears now to the Kentucky defense, I think most of the questions that Iowa fans have for themselves is about this offense. No Tyler Goodson um, with him opting out. What should Iowa fans expect to see from this Kentucky defense? You know, I'm not 100% sure that Kentucky fans know what to expect from the Kentucky defense a lot of times <laughs> this year. It, it felt like earlier in the year they were in a really good spot. Um, like I said, during Mark's tenure here, they've really developed their identity on the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. Uh, what, three years ago, they had the National Defensive Player of the Year and Josh Allen. Um they were not quite as good the last couple of years, but they still had a top 25 defense. They lost five guys from that unit to the NFL draft last year. And I don't think we probably made a big enough deal of that in the off season because they were getting replaced by players who were a experienced had played a lot as backups and B were higher ranked recruits than the guys who just got drafted. And so we thought that that would maybe be a, a kind of seamless transition as the season went on. I think that, played out a little more uh, importantly than maybe we expected. Maybe not so much even from the starters, but just their depth. Uh, when you you could replace the five starters, but then the guys behind them had not played very much. And so depth was a real problem for this defense. And as the SEC season came along, injuries popped up. At one point, they had four guys in their, in their front seven out. Um, that played a real toll. And then that's they had that three-game losing streak right in the middle of the season against Georgia, Mississippi State, and Tennessee. Those two games against Mississippi State and Tennessee in particular were really, really bad on defense. I mean, Mississippi State threw for over 300 yards and completed like 36 of 39 passes. The Tennessee game, Kentucky had 600 yards of offense itself and lost. They held, they held the ball for 47 minutes in that game or something insane like that and lost the game, which is I think they were the, the only team in FBS history to have the ball for that long and lose because they I didn't just kept think that giving was them. physically possible. Yeah, it's it, it's it shouldn't be, but the Tennessee I think scored on three different uh, touchdown throws of sixty yards or more on like the second play of those drives. So they just kept hitting big play after big play. And so going into the second half, you know, the defense was in a really bad spot. They rallied down the stretch. How much of that was because they were playing Vanderbilt, um, New Mexico State, and Louisville, and how much of it was because they got better and got healthier, I think is a legitimate question going into this bowl game and something that we're probably going to figure out in the game as much as anything else. The hope would be the month off in between the regular season finale and now they've gotten healthy. You know, maybe some of those young backups have come along a little bit in these bowl practices and contribute a little bit more. Uh, but they are a little limited on that side of the ball. And I don't, I don't know that you could count on Kentucky going in and shutting down anybody like maybe we thought going into the year. And then I think people realize that Georgia is a really good team, number one at the time. But with that Mississippi State and those Tennessee losses back to back, you were mentioning the injuries. Is there anything from that tape that you think Iowa's really going to be able to exploit, or is it just a matter of, okay, they're really unhealthy at that stretch? 
I mean, I think there's definitely some things in there that Kentucky had to fix, and I'm not sure that they did because of the the strength of schedule. Those last three games was so bad. Um, the defensive part of it, the secondary has been an issue. So the injuries were mostly in the front seven. You look at it and say, well, that doesn't really explain why they were giving up so many passing yards. Obviously, those things are connected, though. So was the secondary playing poorly because they weren't getting a pass rush, or are those guys just not very good? I think that's a question that we don't necessarily have an answer to. They're not very deep in the secondary. Uh, so like I said earlier, the style Kentucky plays on defense, sometimes they'll give up those short yardage throws and be perfectly happy to let you dig and dunk down the field. Mississippi State was particularly effective at that in the air raid. That's something I think that they could still get exploited uh, in. And then it's a question of whether those guys up front can make a difference. Josh Pascal, their uh, senior defensive end, who's probably their best defensive player, he's a doubt for this game, whether he's going to play or not. He had an injury in the Louisville game the last game of the regular season. They haven't actually told us what the injury was. Uh, but we talked to him about a week ago at this point, and he said he wasn't sure if he was playing or not, if he was going to be healthy. It's not an opt-out situation. If he's healthy, he wants to play. But I wouldn't be shocked at all if that, you know, his rehab's taking a little longer. If they say, don't risk it, don't, you know, hurt your draft stock by potentially re-injuring yourself and he doesn't play in this game. And if he's out, that's a big loss for Kentucky. And I think defensively they can still be exploited. And then speaking of injuries and possible NFL draft things. Have there been any other opt-outs or clear injuries of who could be potentially out yet, or is it a little too early? Yeah, so yesterday we got news that um, two of their top receivers, Josh Ali, who's their number two receiver, and Isaiah Epps, who was the third starter for most of the year, but it kind of got passed at the end of the season. Both of those guys are almost certainly not going to play because they were in a car accident earlier this month. They're they're okay, but physically they had some injuries that are going to keep them out of this game. They're not going to be ready to play by January the 1st. So that's that's important. Um, so much of their offense goes through Wondell Robinson in the passing game, but it works better when they have another legitimate receiver threat out there to take some of the attention off of him. And losing Ali means that they don't, frankly. They just don't have any other wide receivers who are, are proven at that level. They've got some really talented tight ends who can make a difference, but uh, in terms of guys outside, that's going to be an issue. Opt-out-wise, we have not heard of anybody who's going to opt-out. Um, Kentucky's actually been pretty lucky in that um, in that way the last three or four years. That 2018 year where they were in the Citrus Bowl, I think kind of set the precedent for the program. And Josh Allen was the National Defensive Player of the Year. He spent most of December going to all these award shows. He was a definite top 10 NFL draft pick, and he played in the game anyway. And that's kind of been the way that they've gone the last three or four years. They did lose one guy to an opt-out last season, Kelvin Joseph, the Cowboys corner who was drafted. But other than that, everybody's played in their bowl games. And all the indications we have so far is other than health issues, uh, everybody's planning to play. And then Iowa gets, or I should say Iowa fans get kind of treated to some pretty good special teams play. How does Kentucky shake up on that part of the field? It's been hit or miss, to be honest. Um, there have been times where they've been pretty successful. Uh, they had a punt return for a touchdown earlier this year from Josh Ali, who's obviously not going to play like we just talked about. Uh, they've had some, uh, they had the best putter in the country two years ago, or the last three years, but they had to replace him this year. The guy they were recruited to replace him, they've, they've used the Australian punter pipeline, was hurt early in the season and then got passed by a walk-on who's been pretty good, but he's not, um, you know, he's not an All-American by any means, what they had there. Their kicking game can be uh, a weapon. Uh, they've got a kickoff specialist who's on scholarship and lost the field goal job, but he can kick it through the end, end zone, at least on kickoff. So there's that. But their field goal kicker is Matt Ruffalo, who's a walk-on. He's got a really nice percentage of kicks made. This uh, He's one of the actually one of the best in, in program history and percentage of field goals made, but his leg is not very strong. They're not going to kick it 50 yards plus um, very reliably. He's missed a few extra points at big moments in his career. So that part of it's a big question mark. I think it's you know probably the polar opposite of Iowa in terms of Kirk Ferentz has developed that reputation of uh, building on special teams. And for most of Mark Stoops' tenure, it's been a complaint that you know he's tried this thing a few times where he didn't have a special teams coordinator at all, and then they were not very good, and people complained about it. And then he hired a guy like they have two co-special teams coordinators this year. 
but I don't think either of them actually invest a lot of time in special teams because they have a quality control coach behind the scenes who's most of it. Uh, so it, it's a question mark. They're not terrible by any means, but there have been times this year where that that unit has not helped them win games. And then I kind of noticed, I think it'd be hard for somebody not to notice in that selection Sunday press conference, how much this game means for Mark Stoops, considering his Iowa connections. Have you ever seen him get kind of, I don't want to use the word emotional, but um, that actually kind of emotional about an upcoming matchup? No, um, I think that for Kentucky fans, that's probably the number one storyline in terms of whenever Kirk Ferentz retires, that press conference is going to get played a lot. <laughs> Those quotes are going to come back a lot when people are making their hot boards and replacements. Uh, Kentucky you technically, I guess, fended off interest to keep Mark Stoops this year. I don't think he got offered any of those jobs, but he was at least connected to a few of them. He got a big contract extension. They just uh, signed and, and released over the weekend. But I think Iowa is actually the job that scares people the most around the program in terms of losing him one day because, you know, his style of play seems to fit there much better than it would at, you know, a Florida or an Oklahoma or some of these jobs that were open this year. He obviously has the ties. You just heard it in that press conference, as important as that program is to him. I mean, legitimately, uh, I was looking at at the at some archives back from his playing career. Uh, his older brothers both had played there. He was the third Stoops brother to play at Iowa. Their father died while he was coaching a high school football game on like a Friday in Youngstown. And then, uh, you know, Hayden Fry at flew to Youngstown for the funeral the next uh, that Wednesday or whatever, even though they had a huge game on the weekend, it just kind of showed how important Iowa was to the Stoops family and the Stoops family was to Iowa. So there's no doubt that this one means a lot to Mark. Um, I think that if he had not been on the road recruiting and kind of uh, pulled a bunch of different directions that night of the press conference and had a little more time to prep for it and think about it, he would have been a little more guarded and maybe not as honest as he was there. But it was a nice moment to see how important that program is to him and, and what this game actually means. And then we still have, if I can do math here, 11 days as we record this from the bowl game. But do you have a score prediction yet? I don't have a – I haven't thought of a specific score. I think I am going to pick Kentucky um, just because their track record is really good in bowl games the last three or four years. I think so much of bowl games is about who wants it more when they, when you get down there. And I think it's easy to at least buy into the narrative that Iowa had much bigger goals than playing in this. Obviously, when you're in the Big Ten championship game, you know, they had hoped to be in the Rose Bowl or, or whatever. And when you start 6-0 and – and yeah, you start 6-0, you're number country. two in the country. It, it's a little disappointing. I mean, obviously, Kentucky also started 6-0 and and technically had a, a dream of making the playoff when you're going to play number one Georgia and you're both undefeated. But nobody actually thought that was going to happen. And, and after the three-game losing streak, the fans had checked out a lot. But the way they ended the regular season, blowing out your rival against Louisville, has people excited. Um, the Citrus Bowl, you know, historically is still – about as good as it gets for Kentucky. They played in, you know, the New Year's Six Bowl, I think twice and not since the 1950s. So I think it's a game that they really want to win. Obviously the Iowa ties for Mark, I think add something to it. So I generally just pick the teams when they're fairly close, uh, who has the most motivation. And, and I think that's probably Kentucky, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be a shootout by any means. It wouldn't shock me if it's like a 28, 24 game or something like that. Yeah, I should be careful as I say this when I go grocery shopping. You know, some people might have some words for me, but I'm also leaning Kentucky so far, especially with Iowa missing Tower Goodson. Yeah. Um, a offense that likes to run the ball has had issues running the ball, but had an NFL caliber running back there. Well, when you take out the NFL caliber running back, I think there's some pretty big questions for this offense. And the granted Kentucky is no Michigan, but I think everyone saw quite a few flaws there in that big 10 championship game. Yeah. And how do you bounce back from that? I know Ferrets talked a lot about that on that, you know, selection show press conference. It's it, it, that's, that's a challenge when your team, uh, you had those big, big hopes and not only did you lose, but you got, you know, kind of embarrassed or blown out. Uh, are you really going to get excited for the citrus bowl a month later? I think that that's, that's going to be important to watch. Well, John, thanks for the time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
And I will see you in Orlando. Sounds good. My next guest on the Hawk Off the Press podcast is Scott Dachterman from The Athletic. Scott, how are you? I can't complain, man. It's been a, it's a good day. It's not too bad outside, and uh, we don't have a derate show, so I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, any week where we don't have a derate show is a good one now. You know, we have really high standards here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, uh, no, no 500-year floods and no derate shows, and then after that, We'll take whatever happens. Hopefully no blizzards, but that's coming. We know that one will. But uh, yeah, as long as I, I looked outside and the only thing that was moved around was the the cover to my grill and in my place and the floor mat or whatever outside my door. I'm like, hey, I'll take that compared to the last one, which, you know, half, half my whole fence went down. So Oh, wow. You had quite the damage there. Yeah, you know, yeah. me in my apartment life doesn't have to deal with that too much. You know, I just park in my underground parking spot. Oh, there's a windstorm. Yeah. Yeah. That must be rough, man. No. <laughs> it's a tough yeah. life, you know. Yeah. And speaking of tough life, you know, Christmas kind of came early here with Iowa releasing the two deeps right before we record this. So it's almost like they said, wow, it would be great if we could give some more stuff for Scott and John to talk about on the podcast. So away we go, man. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting. I think the biggest takeaway was at running back, Ivory Kelly Martin starting with Tyler Goodson opting out for the draft. Um, but wouldn't surprise me if we see a lot of Gavin Williams, maybe even a little bit of LaShawn Williams next week. Yeah, I think we will. I think we'll probably see all three at some point. Um, in some ways, this is kind of a tip of the cap to Ivory Kelly Martin's career. He's He's been a good and faithful soldier for the program for a long time, done a lot of really good things, uh, struggled obviously with fumbles and, and including an unforgivable one really against Wisconsin that really destroyed any chance that they had to win that game. And, uh, but I think now that this is his final game as a Hawkeye, you know, if, I don't know if he'll play the majority of snaps. My guess is probably Gavin Williams will, but, but I think it's a good little, like you said, tip of the cap to a, to a guy who's been there for five years. He was a starter in his second year, got hurt, then got passed up by both Makai Sargent and later Tyler Goodson. So I think it'd be a good um, gesture on their part to let him start, let him carry the ball a few times, and and then uh, then probably make sure you get the other two some good looks because I think Iowa has some really good running backs coming in. Caleb Johnson and, oh, yeah. and Jazzle, Jazzle and Patterson, it, they're both uh, tremendous running backs. I think Gavin Williams is in that category and Sean Williams. Uh, you want to see more of him because if he's going to be number four next year, he's probably not going to be here. Let's be honest. But, <laughs> but if he's, yeah. uh, but if he shows a lot in the bowl game and carries the ball well and, and says, Hey, I, I'm one of my opportunity too, then you're going to have a great competition. And then, then there's no wrong answer. You know, if you have four great running backs, so what? You know, oh, yeah, there. that's as good of a problem as you can really ask for with that. And, you know, this gives also the extra practice time is nice for them because they can figure out, OK, what can LaShawn do? What can Gavin do in a little more? There's a little more space in the pie chart of reps. Now you don't have future NFL running back Tyler Goodson in that kind of pie there. Yeah, and then the, the front part of their practices, the first seven, eight, nine, whatever it is, generally goes to the younger players anyway to kind of re-inaugurate them to the to the system because a lot of the the scout teamers have been running the other team's offense and defense all year. And, and so then they're not really sure, you know, a guy like Joey Labus or, um, you know, Devin Hilson at running back and others, that, that's what they've been doing all year is, you know, today, this week, I'm uh, Hassan Haskins or, you know, I'm Adrian Martinez. Trying to yeah. impersonate him. That's a, that's yeah. a hard one. Yeah, luckily there's nobody impersonating John uh, Jonathan Taylor like a few years <laughs> ago. But 
But uh, no, <laughs> that was impossible. But <laughs> I, I do think, uh, you know, it, so it's a good thing to kind of get them back. Plus, get your players off their feet. It's been a long season. It's it's such a physical grind for them that they need that because some of them are going to require surgery at the end of the year. And we don't really know which ones yet. Uh, but, you know, that's going to happen. And and uh, and so, you know, get them off their feet, allow the other ones to practice be Iowa for a little while, then you get into bowl actual game prep. And then that's when you'd flip your starters back in there and, and really concentrate. And, and uh, I think it's healthy, you know, for, you know, whether it's Ivory or, or Gavin or Deshaun, they'd really get those reps and, and, uh, and, and compete and practice so they can kind of show showcase some of their abilities, but then also, um, you know, flash a little bit for next year because uh, in, in the Williams, this is a case, you know, that they, they're going to have a full off season and this is their opportunity because, you know, I, I think, you know, with, with, again, with Johnson and Patterson, they're going to come in and that's a position where Iowa doesn't fear playing or guys early. So they're going to have a chance to, to compete right away. So I expect a really robust competition come either spring and summer and fall, of course. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting situation there. And also that offensive line, I think, is going to really take a step up this offseason. Even if you have Linderbaum go to the pros, and he obviously hasn't made any public statement one way or another, um, and probably won't for a while. But um, you look at it, you have a lot of those younger guys, especially at the tackles, who, you know, they're getting thrown into the fire. And at guard. Connor Colby really getting thrown into the fire where if you have a more experienced offensive line up there and then you have all these running back options, it could be a good 2022 for Iowa's rushing attack after a little bit of a mixed bag in 2021. Mixed yeah, bag well, might be a little generous. Yeah, I think you're being nice there. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it was it wasn't very good. Let's be no, honest with you. I mean, mm-hmm. running for 3.2 and a half yards per carry is, is terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and really what you got to do is you got to look at 2020 and say what, what was successful then versus what was it this year. And when you have a lot of the same faces, certainly in the backfield, then you look at the offensive line and, and part of it was, you know, it was tackling. It really was. And, and one is uh, Alaric Jackson was tremendous as the edge setter. He wasn't necessarily the best pass protector that Iowa's had. At that position, he wasn't bad. He just wasn't mm-hmm. uh, elite at that level. But was a as a he was a first team All Big Ten tackle, left tackle for four years. Um, he could blow not only blow people off the ball, but he could set the edge and, and allow the running backs to run outside zone, which this year they couldn't. And then Mark Caliburn was really coming along strong too as the right tackle. He would have flipped the left side, but then decided to retire. And and that felt like a big blow when it happened, and it certainly turned out to be the case because you know there's just that there was just this donut hole in recruiting for the upperclassmen um, along the offensive line. I mean, you look at, you know, Kyler Schott was a walk-on when he came in. Um, uh, Nick DeYoung's a sophomore. He was a walk-on when he came in. And then Cody Ince was injured. I think he's their second best lineman. And that really kind of stuck, stunk for them. And then, um, but outside of, you know, Ince and, and uh, maybe and Jack Plum to a degree, I mean, they really had nobody in that upper level uh Linderbaum's in a different category so you don't know yeah <laughs> there's Linderbaum but, and then there's yeah like humans right I mean they just they, they whether it was through attrition or uh academics or other issues it just there were there were some holes there's some gaping holes along the the, out, the edge and it killed them and then somebody like Cody Ince uh, could have maybe moved outside, but wasn't healthy enough. And then, and then uh, Connor Colby will move outside eventually, and he'll be a very good starter on the edge, no question in my mind. But he's still pretty young. And a lot of times, you put that guy on the edge, he can get worked. Especially, you know, you, you fear that game. You know, the last game they played against either one of those guys. You know, Hutchinson or Ojabo, <laughs> he would have gotten eaten alive. And you don't want to ruin somebody's confidence when he's a young. Um, you know, oh, yeah, there's the clip that went viral there of yeah. Jack Plum just getting totally blasted. Yeah, exactly. And and you can survive that with a fourth year guy, not a first year <laughs> guy. So uh so you know, going into next year at that at that position group, I I I imagine I do know actually that they are looking in the portal. And uh 
Now, whether they get somebody who can step right in, I don't know. You know, a couple of years ago they did with Boy Cronk, and then he got injured right away, and that really hurt. Uh, he's going to be a right tackle after starting 40 games on left tackle for Indiana. Um, I would expect them to, to at least get one person and and put them in there and make the whole damn line a competition. You know, and and that's at center. I, I would expect Mike Myslinski to be a guy who's going to be very competitive for the center position. I would expect a couple of true freshmen, Bo Stevens and David Davikoff, to be very competitive for the depth chart uh, somewhere. I would expect Connor Colby to probably go outside and be a starting tackle at one side or the other. Um, Mason Richmond, you know, of course, who hurt his knee or in, against Northwestern and he came back. I would expect him to be somewhere in the line um cody Ince, if he's healthy he's playing for sure oh yeah and and, and then but you know there's going to be i think it ought to just wipe the slate clean let them go let them compete and bring somebody else in and and have a have a party you know and, and i think that's really where that's at because this was a subpar year and it happened to coincide with a brand new coach george barnett so it reflects on him as well mm-hmm. so I, I i expect this to be an off season where there's always attention paid to that position group, but in this case, I, I would expect it to be intensified in the off-season, weightlifting program, spring football, and beyond. Well, especially because I think when you look at almost all of the offensive issues that Iowa experienced this year, in some way or another, it all kind of tied to that offensive line, where whoever was that quarterback, whether it's Petrus, whether it's Padilla, they didn't have time. Um, especially against Michigan. So you have that. And obviously there were other issues that Petrus and Padilla had. It certainly wasn't just that, but you've got that. You have the running game. You know, you can point to a lot of different things where if there's a little more strength on the offensive line, that would go a long ways. Well, no question. I mean, you know, they, you know, 32 sacks is way, way too many. I mean, you really want that number and a half, you know, or so by this point in the year. And, and I mean, the last time they had that many sacks, God, I'm trying to think, you know, probably like, uh, you know, it had to have been like 2007 or so. I, I'd have to look that up, but 2007 you know, when I was in elementary school. So, and you're making me feel really old. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I my think specialties. I, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I, I have two kids. One of them was only a couple years younger than you, so uh, <laughs> you know, they they make me feel old every day. But uh, I'll 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 say this that yeah that giving up that many sacks, I think the biggest problem was just not being able to run the football. I if if they were able to run the football, it would take some pressure off because the fact that so often on first down it was. They turned it into either second twelve or second nine, you know, depending on whether it was inside zone versus outside zone. <laughs> and then it was like, well, they have to pass now, and and then everybody could rush at them and stuff. If they're able to get, you know, four or five yards per carry right off the bat on first down, like a lot of teams do, then then they could have said, well, then the team doesn't know what is it going to be run or pass, and you can disguise it, and you can have a little more time for your quarterback. But but the fact that they just uh, they they put themselves in so many poor situations because of it was really, uh, you know, that, that killed them when it came to the pass protection. And then, and then to top it off, the, the quarterbacks were, were not very good either. And, no. and uh, you know, in a pro style offense, you need a high completion percentage and theirs was low. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you look at Padilla's numbers. He had the only game with above 50% completion percentage was Northwestern. And granted, Completion percentage is far from a perfect stat because obviously different types of throws have different chances of success. But regardless, I don't care if you're throwing deep balls every play, those numbers weren't great. And Padilla wasn't throwing deep balls every play either. So yeah, there's some work to be done there. Yeah. And that's, that to me is the, I, I think quarterback, it, it is every year, but it's, but, you know, it's, I guess every year in equal importance, because I always say, I've always said that, oh, this is the biggest story of the year. Well, I guess again, you know, a quarterback, because, um, you know, Spencer wasn't great either, uh, you know, 50, less than 57%. He's down actually from, from a subpar 2020 season. And that's not, 
that's not real good. And, um, you know, he's got nine touchdowns and six interceptions. That's not good either. And then he's mentioned with Padilla, he's at 49% for the season. That's, um, those are numbers you can't accept unless you are a running quarterback who is like Lamar Jackson. <laughs> those are and those are numbers you can't accept in this style no. of offense. It kills. And Padilla is good on his feet, but he's not Omar Jackson. And Peter yeah. has said in probably the understatement of the year earlier this season that he's not exactly Omar Jackson back yeah. there. Right, and I, I mean even a even an Adrian Martinez, you know, I, I mean who's who's been a very good player for a long time. Mm-hmm. He's going to Kansas State now after it feels like a lifetime in, <laughs> in Nebraska. Um, you know, you, you still couldn't really tolerate 49%. He was really high in his percentages. So I think it, in this style of offense, you know, the only one that I'll say I'll give him a pass for was the, the Minnesota game because that they were targeting down the field and they had one-on-one matchups and stuff. But, but I think you, you've got to get that over 60%. You just can't be in that low territory. And frankly, you know, even Nate Stanley – Threw a lot of touchdowns. He threw 68 touchdowns in three seasons. That's that's exceptional. But I'll yeah. say this: that his his completion percentage wasn't very high either. They haven't had anybody like that since Bethard, and really Bethard's junior year because their senior year they had they <laughs> be nice. They they re, they struggled more at wide receiver position that year than the line did this year. So um, it was it was a really rough year for them on that side. So so offensively, they've just they found ways to not to, to either not be able to run the ball and they make up for it by not being able to pass it. So, um, you know, so I, I don't know. I'm not being very kind today. but uh, <laughs> You're uh, not in the Christmas spirit, but this uh, offense hasn't given much reason to be in the Christmas spirit either. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. I, I did a I did a big mailbag this weekend, and, and one of the things that I wrote about was um, just uh, when you look look at running quarterbacks, for instance, you need to have somebody who can extend drives, and Iowa hasn't had that really since Bethard. You know, his junior year, he ran for four hundred and fifty yards. You know, when you don't account for sacks, yeah. um, the you know the guys this year don't have any i mean that year he ran for 34 first downs petrus in two years has ran for 18 i mean those are just um night and day difference yeah and now if we would reverse this to 2020 where they averaged almost 32 points a game and 4.6 yards per carry then i'll say throw out all the other stats they don't really matter you know if you're if you're controlling tempo and if you're scoring points Okay, I don't care what the analytics say. I don't care what the <laughs> metrics. I don't care about S and P and all that happy bleep. But I do. <laughs> but but when you're 123rd or whatever they are today, running the football, that matters yeah. uh, for for a ground acquisition offense. So I, I think this is uh, this has really got to be a wake up call to to make changes. I like the run scheme. I think it's difficult to master, but I also think that the passing game is just too unwieldy and, and difficult for them to, to really, it just hasn't been very successful for a long, long time. And they, they need to really make some adaptations to it. Yeah. And it'll be an interesting test, I think for them because Kentucky seems to, when they kind of fall short this year, maybe not so much historically, but this year they've had some question marks on defense. So I think it'll be an interesting matchup between Iowa offense versus Kentucky defense. Now it also doesn't help Iowa for this game that they're going to be without Tyler Goodson. And when you have a, when you have a run heavy offense that has struggled to run the ball pretty mightily, except for the last four games when they're playing have cupcake opponents, um, when you have that offense and then the bright spot being that you have a speed back like Tyler Goodson, who most likely is have some kind of NFL career, and now you don't have Goodson, it could be a long day offensively in Orlando. Yeah, it's not. Obviously, there's a reason why Tyler Goodson was the starting running back, and he, and he had... He had home run ability that I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm not sure the other guys have. I, I, Kelly Martin does, but Kelly Martin was less dependable and and probably yeah he has some skills that are similar to what you see with with Tyler Goodson. Uh, you know, Gavin Williams. I'm not sure about his home run hitting, but 
he was better at inside zone, I think. And I, I'd also think he was better at picking up second eight versus <laughs> second 12. Cause I think Tyler at times tried to do too much. Yeah. And it, it's understandable. Hero. You know, it's like, Oh, well, there's a guy there in the hole. I'm trying to dance and move. And then all of a sudden you tackle for two yard loss. And that's, you know, after a while you're like, you know, you can't do that anymore. Uh, yeah. But I, I do think with, uh, you know, in, Gavin's case, he'll probably just at least fall forward and get one, one yard. <laughs> um, neither one is ideal. Let's put it that way. But, oh, but yeah. I do, you know, I, I don't think this is as big of an issue as it can be because I do think they've, uh, I, do, I do have a lot of faith, especially in Gavin Williams. I think he's quality running back. He was in mm-hmm. high school and, you know, he was a guy that Brian Ferentz was willing to commit a violation for, you know, when he mentioned <laughs> him in a press conference. So, uh, I, I expect him to, to play and play well. And, and they've had this similar situation in the past. Um, but at least Sean Williams has some breakaway speed that we really haven't seen. So I, I think Iowa might not be so bad there. They're, they're, the questions are, can they take advantage of a secondary that hasn't done much in Kentucky? Mm-hmm. And can they contain a pass rush that is pretty good? So if they could do that, eh, you know, they've done worse. They've played more difficult defenses recently in bowl games, Mississippi state a few years ago being number one. But, uh, but that said, uh, you know, th- this will be a challenging matchup. No question. And I'm going to be really intrigued kind of on the other side of the ball with Iowa's defense against Kentucky's offense, because I think this Kentucky offense is a really balanced attack. Obviously with Rodriguez running the ball, he's done that incredibly efficiently. But then you've also got really respectable passing attack that Kentucky hasn't exactly been known for. Now, of course, there's the asterisk of, okay, look at the schedule they played. And, okay, well, some of those defenses, Vanderbilt is not known for a menacing defense or really menacing anything in football. So you have some asterisks on that, but I think it'll be an interesting matchup on that side of the ball. Yeah, they do. They played, I mean, the SEC East, other than Georgia, was pretty mediocre. Um, you know, but they, they lost to some teams of comparability. And I think you can say the same thing about Iowa, especially during mm-hmm. the season with Purdue and uh, and uh, Wisconsin. I think Mississippi State and Tennessee are comparable abilities. And, you know, there are a lot of rivalries. There are a lot of teams that qualified for bowl games. I'm not sure they're very good. You know, Florida lost his coach. South Carolina, you know, as you mentioned, Vanderbilt isn't very good. Louisville qualified for a bowl game. That's a rivalry game. They did well. They're well coached. I mean, this is a program that has been notorious over the generations of struggling. Um, it's kind of like when uh, <laughs> when the, the SEC was formed in the 1930s, it was like, okay, and you get football and you get football and you get football. Okay, Kentucky, you want basketball, you got that. That's kind of the way it all worked out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like in the, the big eight, you know, it's like Kansas, you get basketball, Nebraska, you get football. Uh, but, but you know, Rodriguez has, has been very good, obviously. You know, he's, he's a dual threat a little bit. He's made a lot of catches, not a lot of yards in that area. But Will Levis fascinates me because Iowa did want him in the worst way um, when they recruited him and then he picked. But he, he was from the, I think, Connecticut area. And and his dream dream uh, school was Penn State. Penn State came in and, all right, that's it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he's had a really nice I year crossed there. that one off the list there. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, oh, crap. I think they ended up with Petrus because of that. But um, – and then Wandale Robinson, we've seen for years at, at Nebraska, and he, they've really maximized him um, in that, you know, with 94 catches. He's he's a terrific player, and you got to be cognizant of where he is at all times. So I, I expect them to get yards on Iowa um, mm-hmm. because, especially early, because Iowa's defense tends to really struggle early in games. I think it's that kind of this drive in particular yeah. just seems to be the curse. Well, Illinois was the perfect example of that one. Right. I mean, they're kind of like the pitcher or the batter going through the lineup for the first time. And it's like, okay, I can't quite catch up to his fastball. And and so I strike out or, you know, basically they score a touchdown and then you kind of come back. All right. Now I've seen their punch. A lot of that script, you know, player – all coaches, all offensive coordinators script their plays. They know in Iowa doesn't deviate much. I mean, they're either a four-two-five or a four-three, and they don't really, you know, move guys around and do different things 
necessarily. Uh, so then therefore it's kind of easy to plan for, and it's just about execution at that point. And you've worked on that execution. So it's sometimes it's easy for it to pay off. It's just a matter of, can I avoid the big plays? That's what killed them against Michigan early. Yeah. And, and then can Iowa settle into a groove where they slow them down, make them play down by down? If they can, they'll be fine. But yeah. if not, you know, it, you don't want to put your offense in a position where it has to catch up. Even though it has done it this year, it's not advantageous for this no. offense. No, and when some oftentimes when it has, it's really been because of defense where that Nebraska comeback, okay, well, having, you know, those series of really – low percentage plays that you know they came up with each time you don't really want to bet on that and speaking of the big plays you know I was mentioning afterwards that it wasn't really good for the defense after Michigan and I got a little bit of flack for that one but you look at it the big plays that's such a big part of Bill Parker's scheme and I think it was more big plays given up in the first quarter than maybe his first half but in that short amount of span, then Phil Parker wants allowed in an entire game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's hard to win games like that. Yeah, I mean, they they targeted a, a young corner in Jamari Harris. Uh, uh, you know, Jamari, you know, by and large, he had a nice year for oh, stepping yeah. into that role as a sophomore. Kind of thrown into the fire there because yeah. everyone thought that secondary was the one spot that had the most depth. And then you have the injuries to Terry Roberts. You have the injuries to Matt Hankins. Matt Hankins still not on the two deeps. So, yeah, all of a sudden, uh, young Jermari Harris is have, having a starring role. And I don't think really anybody was expecting that this would be the year that, okay, he's getting thrown into the fire here. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Michigan made a point. I mean, I think one was his fault, one was – I'm sure with the the pitch pass for a touchdown was more of a, you've got to make sure you come up and stop the run when it's coming at your way. And then all of a sudden he's free and run and then went over to the top of his head, took advantage of a young corner. I don't know that Hankins allows that, but you know, that's the way it goes. Then he missed a tackle on that big long run. And, and those are, those are plays Iowa typically doesn't give up. That That's one thing that they're built on make make you go the 75 yards or to score touchdowns and if and it, you know it was still a fairly competitive game I guess by halftime I mean it was 14 to three but Iowa had had drives and, and Iowa's defense had settled in and it was just really a matter of in the third quarter you just could play that way for four quarters against a great no. team like Michigan you've got to drag them in the mud like Iowa has done in the past and just pound them into the mud until fourth quarter. And then you kick field goal and you win 14, 13. <laughs> and that was, that didn't happen. No, that so, didn't happen by far. Yeah. And then once he had the block punt, it was over and Michigan, there was no let up with Michigan and understandably so because there was bowl seating at, at the case and, and you want to put your best, uh, you know, make your best case. So I, you know what? It wasn't that, enough of a case for them to get the one seed, but you know, you were pretty convincing. That. Yeah, I, I would say the flea flicker at the end was a little bit BS, but other than that, you know, I, I didn't have a problem with anything else. But, but either way, uh, this defense overall overperformed. Um, certainly, I think especially in the, on the defensive line. You know, the, the, the defensive line's really young. They were dominant in 2020, as dominant. I mean, they had the number one stop rate in the country. You know, Davion Dixon was Defensive Player of the Year, had more TFLs uh, per game than any player since 1992 in the Big Ten. Uh, was just tremendous. Chauncey Golston may have been even better. Uh, and, and Jack Eflin was a, was a solid, tough kid in the middle. And uh, So to lose all of them um, and just kind of throw a lot of young Labrador puppies out there and let them make plays. And, and they did. And, and then the back seven was as good as you find in college football. So I, I think they did over, overperform a little bit on that side of the ball. They weren't perfect. This wasn't the best that they've had. They don't have a Supreme pass rusher yet. I think that's coming, but, um, but overall, it was, it, I mean, the, the turnovers, you can't, I mean, 24 exceptions. I mean, you know, and, and I, I, I think they've got a chance to make a few more here in the bowl game. Oh, yeah. I mean, Will Levis has 12 this year, so. 
So uh, there's a, when you do the probability, points. there's a pretty good chance that they can add on to that. And on the line, you know, some younger players like Lucas Van Ness, you know, he, I think in particular, really stepped up. That's a hard role for him as an underclassman. And, you know, he produced, especially early on in the season. Oh yeah, I mean, look, he led the team in sacks, and and we yeah. did our all freshman team nationally, and he he was on it. I mean, both he and Connor Colby. I mean, they both were tremendous as freshmen, and uh, six sacks. Uh, he really got to the passer, and you know, did it from an inside position, which I think will pay off for him, and uh, literally, and, and you know, and eventually <laughs> in his wallet, because he, you know, now he he'll probably make that transition outside is my guess is, you know, I could see him and this being like the number one, you know, right defensive end in the spring, you know, and, and then you get Ethan Herkett back. Who was, that was a kind of a big loss because he's just a yeah. relatively kid from Xavier, as you know, and physical and, and just, you know, and, and Logan Jones, who's a rocked up dude. He's already set records in the weight room and then hurt his knee in spring ball. And uh, I think YA black may have the best potential out of all of them, but, oh, yeah. you know, but he's, uh, you know, it, it's not unusual for a guy of his size to not make a big impact necessarily early in his career. It's once he perfects his technique that his body can kind of, Cable, uh, you know, turn that in. I think Carl Davis was that way at Iowa. He's still playing a lot for the New England Patriots. And, um, you know, so I really like their young guys. Uh, you know, I, I think they've got, you know, Logan Lee as a sophomore finally had a, a healthy year and looked good. Deontay, a couple Craig, of really big been, plays there towards the end of the season, too, yeah. with him. So this is a line that in another year and definitely in two years will be as good as there is in college football. I really believe that. And, and so when you plug in you now, like next year might just be kind of the meeting of elite linebacking core, a little bit young secondary, but has some experience with an ascending defensive line. I think this defense could be really good. Their schedule gets dramatically more difficult to <laughs> play, but, but other than that, they will be, They'll be a, a, probably a better defense. Yeah. Avoiding Michigan, Michigan State, and Ohio State with the crossover games this year. Well, avoiding Michigan until the Big Ten championship game. But you're inevitably going to face one of those in the championship game. But avoiding them in the regular season, yeah, it's a little easier when you're playing Indiana, who everyone had higher expectations for, and then they kind of played like – what you would expect historically from Indiana, yeah, right. Maryland, well, that everyone mm-hmm. thought was be good, and then played kind of like what you'd expect from Maryland, and then Penn State, also another one where everyone kind of had high expectations for, and then you know obviously the ceiling, or I should say the floor, did not fall as much obviously for them as it did for the other two. But still not the top 10 team that people are expecting out of Penn State either. It's funny because who ruined their, those three seasons? Iowa. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> in, Indiana was ranked higher than Iowa when they played them. And I mean, and a lot of money was on Indiana and Iowa just destroyed them. Uh, you know, Maryland was undefeated and on the cusp and a lot of money was on in, uh, Maryland to beat Iowa out there. And they had a nice drive to start the game and Iowa just, just took his bony to their ice rink and, you know, with a shovel <laughs> attached to it. And then, uh, <laughs> and then you look at, uh, you know, Penn state, Iowa and Penn state were in the top five when they played that game and uh, Penn state had lost, uh, you know, some, Significant games, obviously, Illinois is being a number one, but, you know, lost a lot of close games. Now, it, it's funny because when we when you talk about schedule and East and stuff, in 2020, Penn, or Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State combined for an 8-14 record. Yeah. Iowa beat Michigan State 49-7, to and it really wasn't even that close. Um, yeah. Michigan, if they would have played Michigan at the end of the year, the score would have looked the same as this year's in reverse. Um and then they did beat Penn State by 20. So if this year, you know, you didn't play those those teams, and they're granted they were much better, but it, it's just it's like, well, it's how can they win here? <laughs> you know, they didn't play Indiana when Indiana was what six and one or whatever in the Big Ten, and, and yeah, you know, so it wasn't their fault, you know, what schedule they should have played them, but the crossover thing didn't work out, and and so overall, 
you're next year you're slated to go to the Death Star in Ohio State. You haven't been there since 2013. And granted, and you Michigan's, get Rutgers too, but yeah, but they're not as bad as they've been in the past. Yeah. And, and then you look at uh, um, uh, Michigan, they come to Kinnick. My anticipation is that it's either going to be an 11 o'clock on Fox or it's going to be a night game and it's going to be raucous. So uh, one of the two. And and now they're they're going to redo the schedule, um, you know, probably fairly soon. But it's it's still going to be um, it'll be entertaining to see how that all plays out. But, you know, those are going to be big and important games. And and then you can't forget about the, the teams in your own division. I mean, Wisconsin oh, yeah. pretty much dominated them. Uh, Tyron Tracy with Purdue, um, Minnesota. Now, hates- circle that on the calendar. Yeah. You know, Nebraska will still try to beat Iowa. Minnesota will still hate Iowa. <laughs> Northwestern, same deal. So, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of, it's going to be an entertaining schedule, but we got a long way and a lot of conversation to go for that one. <laughs> yes. Well, the immediate thing with the Kentucky game, do you have a score prediction yet? <sighs> No, uh, not really. I think I'm, I got Iowa, but I think it's going to be close. I think it's going to be like a field goal game either way, like 1916, you know, so something that people are going to go, I don't want to watch this game. Let's really care <laughs> about the teams, but uh, you know, otherwise I think it's uh, it, that's probably the, the case that it's going to be a, uh, you know, close game. Iowa has a tendency to really turn around. And, and play well when you don't expect it to in these types of games. And, and I, I, that's kind of what I think on this one, that they'll come, it'll play, it'll be a four-quarter game, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if it's something like Caleb Shudek kicks a field goal with two <laughs> minutes to go, and then, the, then they close out the game with an interception and win, you know, 21-16. So I'll, I'll say Iowa by a couple points somewhere in that quality. I'm a brave soul here, and I'm picking Kentucky right now. Also probably by about a field goal. I think, and the thing that we haven't talked about yet is Mark Stoops. You know, this game means a lot to him. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, it's a little bit of a, maybe a disappointment for the end for Iowa that they're here and not say Pasadena. Um, So I think there's a lot for Kentucky to play for. I think the offensive questions still loom there um so i think yeah it'll probably i think go down to can iowa's defense keep this kentucky offense at bay because if so then as you were saying earlier with iowa and their catch-up games it's not really the spot you want to be in so i think that's what it's going to come down to but i'm really looking forward to the mark stoops playing his alma mater storyline um, I think we've all written at least something about it so far, but, um, uh, I think that's going to be something where it adds a little more meaning to a game that otherwise is to some extent an exhibition in the long run. No question. I mean, and that's what we're talking about with bowl games these days anyway. I mean, until they get to the expanded playoffs, I mean, then there'll be a clear delineation between, bowls and, and playoff now they're trying to make the bowls sound more than what they are i mean when you got players opting out and, and leaving and coaches you know going to their fat new family in in, in the south from, away from the <laughs> team i you like know, that, that southern that, accent you pulled off there yeah i, I worked in uh, missouri for six plus years so i know how to i don't know how to stretch it out a little bit i can't go all the way to louisiana but, but i <laughs> a little bit, but but well, I uh, think yours is still better than Brian Kelly's. No, but yeah, absolutely. I, I can, I lived it, so I can pull it out a little bit. So, <laughs> um, you know, for me, I, I think the reason why I would go more Iowa, and this is a, a huge factor, is turnover margin. Oh, Iowa's yeah. plus 14, Kentucky's minus 13. Um, I think Kentucky has a much better offense, no question. I mean, they, they were able to score and they're able to do things. But Iowa's defense is pretty salty. So I think they're not going to get blown out of the water here on this thing. It's oh, just no. going to be, you know, can they contain Josh Pascal? Uh, that's really <laughs> the biggest question I have. I mean, he's not Aiden Hutchinson, but he's pretty good. And, and, yeah. uh, and I think that's going to be 
Um, I, I think another little fascinating factoid is Iowa has the longest winning streak of any of non-conference football. It's 16 games and Kentucky's at 15 and it's second. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of little, little flavor there, but I do think, you know, the fact Iowa has 24 interceptions and Kentucky only has six. I, I think that's helpful. Kentucky doesn't pass defense isn't real good, but in Iowa, it's not like they're impotent. I mean, they can throw the ball. And oh yeah. So, you know, so, you know, Keegan Johnson, Arlen Bruce, you know, Nico Regani and Charlie Jones have made big plays the past mm-hmm. game this year. So I, I, I think Iowa is going to be there now. Um, you know, they, they've got to establish some things, but um, it, it, and bowl games are weird. They're just, <laughs> they're, they're, they're unpredictable to a lot of issues. So I think it's, uh, I think it could go either way on paper. I'd probably oh, be yeah. right with you with Kentucky, but I just, I, I have a feeling that, I was going to play well and, um, you know, maybe it goes the other way, you know, but I, I think that either way, no matter what happens, unless they get blown out, I think this has been a pretty successful year, all things considered, because this is the type of year when you look statistically and performance wise on the offense, it's typically about a seven win season and we'll get squeezed 10 out of that is, is a big deal. Oh yeah. 10, maybe 11, maybe 11. Yeah. You know, I think if most people were told that, the beginning of the season before the expectations kind of skyrocketed with that six and zero start. Okay. You're either going to go, let's see, can I do math here? 10 and four, 11 and three. And you go to a big 10 championship game. You lose to a team that eventually goes to the college football playoff. And Oh, also you go to the citrus bowl, the most prestigious big 10 affiliated bowl that isn't new year's six. I think Iowa fans are happy to be skipping out that ball. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a good, it's a good place for this team. And um, I think in looking back, uh, there were, there are more talented teams in Iowa's case, um, you know, really last couple of years, last year's team, 2020, if it would have gotten Indianapolis, it might've won. It had the defense to, to really, derail even Justin Fields and Ohio State. And, and I, I, I thought this through that as good as the defense played and as good as the running game was, it, it could have thrown down, been in a good game with about anybody save for Alabama. You know, that would have been the only kryptonite for them. But, but you know, at, at the end of the year, this team did not have that because they just, you know, again, left tackle. <laughs> uh, Amir Smith-Marset, who became the first uh, Iowa player to score, uh, Iowa wide receiver to score a touchdown in 14 years last night. And, uh, you know, he was only 14 change. years. Yeah. Now, granted, they've had, what, 113 touchdown uh, receptions by tight ends yeah. since then. But uh, tight end you were talking about. Yeah. So they, they need to do a little better job than the other one. But then, uh, <laughs> You know, it, he was able to stretch the field that changed a lot of the game. And then you look at Alaric Jackson, and then you look on defense with Bignon Nixon and, and Chauncey Golson in particular. Those, those they were game changers. Now I think the secondary's played better this year, and certainly the linebacking core has for for sure. It's not even close. But um, you know, so either way, this was a good year for Iowa. It's one that fans should accept. But still, be I can I understand the frustration with the offense because that that part of it has to make some changes. Yeah, and I get for fans too that you know it's not a ton of fun to watch not great offense. Where, you know, I think it's sometimes a little more exciting for a fan when okay, you have this electric offense and you know defense has some issues and gives up some big plays. So I get how that can be maybe sometimes a little more entertaining, but. What Iowa did won games. So mm-hmm. 10 wins in the regular season doesn't happen very often. Yeah, they, they don't. I mean, two years ago they got 10, um, you know, in part because of, uh, uh, you know, they, they were able to win that bowl game decisively against USC, and they looked pretty good doing it. They had some close losses. And, and it's just a matter of, um, you know, it, what's what I think what riles up Iowa fans, and I can tell you this for a, a being from here for a long time is you look at the basketball team and it was number two seed in the NCAA tournament and everybody knew what its fatal flaw was, which was defense. And it <laughs> got exposed and lost. This mm-hmm. team, everybody knew what its fatal flaw was, which was offense. And that's what cost them in, in pivotal games. And, you know, because you're just not going to be able to win every game in low scoring. 
and no. you're not going to be able to hold every opponent. And sometimes you have your mistakes magnified. And that was certainly the case against Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, Purdue was a game where you needed to score because they're capable of scoring. And, and this team oh, wasn't. Yeah. Um, this team and wasn't I think with that Purdue game, Iowa had good opportunities there, but you have to convert on that third and two on third or fourth down in the red zone. And yeah, they didn't. And well, I think that yeah. kind of was maybe a metaphor for the offense. <laughs> exactly. Two, two games in a row where you, you know, two quarterback sneaks, you can't convert two straight fullback dives at Wisconsin. You can't convert. And, uh, you know, both came back just to bite your butt, you know? And so it's just a matter of what, um, and, that it does show some somewhat a lack of confidence in your offense and your entire playbook when you when you go to that well too often and then of course you get caught. So you know that that there again, you know that that's part of the problem and that's what's frustrating for fans is you, you saw a year ago quarterback was an issue and it didn't get any better and you think the passing game is still an issue and it hasn't gotten better for since Marvin Nutt was here. So what are you going to do different? <laughs> Nothing. We're not going to do anything different. We're going to do it the exact same way we always have because that's what's like, oh, God. What? <laughs> but I'm not, we're not going to solve this problem today. That's for sure. <laughs> no, that is probably the one thing that is the most certain. But Scott, thanks again for joining the podcast. Now, one you are very familiar with from mm-hmm. the old on Iowa days. Yes. Yes. I'm glad to be on and uh, always enjoy reminiscing about the old on Iowa pod with, with Morehouse when we would do it in various locations uh, from Pasadena <laughs> on New Year's Eve to uh, his basement on media day one year to the car ride back coming back from Big Ten media days <laughs> to uh, enjoying a beer after the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. Well, I can guarantee you that that was not a celebratory occasion with 2016 for me as a Brewers fan, but, you know, I'm happy for you. Your Bears aren't doing so great, so. Yeah, we don't talk about that. <laughs> I don't know who I hate more, the, the Bears uh, the Bears themselves and their coaching staff or the officials. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, probably good to leave it on that note, so. Thanks again to our listeners for tuning into another edition of the Hawk Off the Press podcast. This will be the last one before Christmas, so I wish you all a Merry Christmas. And I'll be back with another podcast next week before the Citrus Bowl. Until then, I'll talk Hawks later. Mm-hmm.